It's 8.30 on Wednesday, September 19th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a look at a new report from the state auditor's office is turning attention to some of the state's smaller board operations. We'll hear what he hopes to see going forward. Then, doctors at the University of Mississippi Medical Center are preparing for a research project they hope will break new ground in the study of dementia. Find out more. And we'll learn about training opportunities for rural business development across the state. Plus, a special report on why fewer Mississippi historically black college graduates are giving back to their alma mater. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. State Auditor Shad White says he hopes a new audit report on the Mississippi Board of Dental Examiners will spur other agencies into good financial behavior. Among the report findings are issues with state travel card use, excessive overtime leave for executives, and the board's lack of oversight of the director. Auditor White tells MPB's Ezra Wall agencies need to be accountable for taxpayer dollars. We have a compliance audit division, and their goal is to get into uh, every state agency that we're not otherwise auditing at least once every four years. So, in other words, they end up doing a lot of the small state agencies that may not get audited for another reason. And so if you're going through and you're trying to catch each of these uh, once every four years at least, uh, then then all of our, our small boards and agencies will come up. And, and this was an instance where uh, it was time to do this one. Uh, and so we, we launched an audit. Uh, I say we, the office, launched this beginning before I got here uh, when uh, previous auditor Stacey Pickering was in office. And completed the audit over the course of the last couple of months and uh, found some things that uh, that were particularly bad in this case. And, and we wanted to identify those in the hopes that going forward, the, the, the board uh, and the future staff of that office would be able to correct it. What would you say from the public's perspective would be like the most obvious thing that you found in this investigation? We found emails that showed that it uh, looked like staff were being allowed to uh, consume alcohol during business hours. That kind of thing is, is particularly troubling to a normal person on the street because they think, you know what, I don't get to do that at my job. Uh, folks who work at the Board of Dental Examiners shouldn't get to do that at their job. I had a follow-up question on that that I, I wanted to bring up later, but uh, since you brought it up, I'll, I'll just ask it now. Was this something that was happening on-premises at the Board of Dental Examiners, or is this like colleagues out to lunch and they maybe don't know the rules or something like that? Talking about the emails that we saw, the email traffic that we saw, it suggested that uh, this was something going on uh, potentially in office, a party in the middle of the day in the work day. Uh, and so, you know, you just you see evidence like that, and you have got to identify it uh, and and make sure that the future leadership of this board of dental examiners knows that they can't do things like that. So, to go back to the other the other piece of this, you have some things that may seem mundane, like the, the board of dental examiners not having clear oversight over the staff. You know, that's something that can just generate problems. Uh, having uh, money that flows through the offices that is not deposited in a timely way, that, is, that opens the office up for, for potential theft or fraud. Uh, having uh, procurement duties that are not separated, so you'd like to see staff 
doing different pieces of the procurement process so one person is not in charge of everything. That's something that if you don't have those separation of duties, it can open the office up to fraud. So you see those things, and they may not be, uh, they may not be something that jumps out off the page to a normal person reading this kind of audit, but for us, those are the things that are really big red flags that, that we hope get addressed in the future. In terms of the infractions that you have uncovered evidence of, is there evidence of nefarious activity or corruption, so to speak? There, there's no evidence that anyone personally took any money uh, that they should not have taken. If, if there were evidence of that, then this would be a different issue. It would not just be an audit result. You would see a demand from our office, and, and that demand would be issued to those folks who had uh, potentially taken money. Um, and, and then you'd be in a different sort of world than the world we're in now. What we've got here is really a situation where there are, just, there are a lot of activities or behaviors that showed a lack of common sense, like in the alcohol case, or a lack of attention to detail. It shows that folks are not caring about following the steps that, that we think you ought to be following to prevent fraud. And if you, if you start skipping those steps, if you, you know, if you take money into the office and you leave it around the office too long, you're just opening yourself up to a, a lot of problems. So Really, this was not in the world of, of embezzlement or anything like that. This is just an example of an audit that is, uh, is showing particularly bad management and some problems that really need to be fixed. On the whole, should people of Mississippi be fairly confident about how their tax dollars are being managed? Is this an exception to the rule? My hope is that when I look back three or four years from now, when we've run through, when we've run the gamut on all the agencies and had a good look at a lot more counties, my hope is that the takeaway is that this is the exception rather than the rule, that these problems are not seen all across state government. We, we walk into every state agency basically uh, a blank slate. We make no opening assumptions about what is going on there. We want to be fair to everybody. We don't want to assume there's corruption, and we also don't want to assume that, uh, that everything is perfect and we're not going to take your word for it. We're going to verify, trust but verify. And so my hope is that as we do more of these audits, we do this audit of the Dental Examiner's Board and then release it, my hope is that we'll either discover the other remaining problems in state government over the next few years or the other state boards and agencies will see, look, these guys are taking this seriously and they're not going to let us get by with uh, a relaxed posture toward the rules that prevent fraud and corruption. We're going to have to step our game up. Shad White is the state auditor for the state of Mississippi. Auditor White, thank you very much for uh, helping us out with some information today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. The board did not respond to our request for comment, but a board member told the Clarion Ledger issues raised in the report were being resolved. In other news, according to the National Alzheimer's Association, 54,000 Mississippians have the disease, which is one type of dementia. The disease is most common in aging adults. Dementia causes loss of memory and reasoning that interferes with daily life, such as forgetting names and difficulty completing normal tasks. Dr. Beverly Windham is with the Mind Center at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She tells MPB's Desiree Fraser more. What we are doing earlier in life 
as early as midlife really relates to our risk of developing cognitive problems, including dementia, later in life. So having longer exposures to hypertension and diabetes or obesity, for example, are associated with increased risk of developing dementia, including Alzheimer's-type dementia later in life. So if I exercise and try to eat healthy, I'm more likely not to get dementia? We think absolutely that might decrease your risk of developing detrimental losses in cognitive function over time. And some studies have found that higher levels of physical activity and eating healthier diets, specifically diets similar to the Mediterranean diet, were associated with less cognitive decline over years of follow-up. So what can you do for people who come in who haven't led a healthy lifestyle since Mississippi does have some of the highest rates in the nation of diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, et cetera? Uh, So later in life, it is not too late to start, and I would suggest that we all need to be thinking about uh, treatable, modifiable risk factors. Um, It's I think timely that you mentioned the higher rates of obesity, stroke, and those things in Mississippi. Um, Mississippi southern states tend to also have higher rates of dementia. Not everyone realizes that. We have also uh, seen and others have documented higher rates in African Americans. But in the south, both whites and blacks tend to be affected at higher rates than people in more northern parts of the U.S. Have you been able to determine what causes it? Well, we have not, but it is a focus of our current and ongoing research interest. In fact, we are uh, working on starting a new research study that will recruit people from Mississippi, uh, blacks and whites, to help us figure out that. We are working on that in collaboration with some investigators uh, who Dr. Mosley from the Mind Center has worked with for decades now. And through these ongoing collaborations, we are uh, developing a study of aging that will focus on cognitive risk, cognitive outcomes from midlife to later life, um, and in conjunction with some work being done at Mayo Clinic. And what age range are you most likely to develop it? And do you ever see young people getting it? Uh, As age increases, risk increases. So your highest risk is among the oldest people. If you're younger than, say, 60, your risk is particularly low. And those tend to be more unusual, more rare uh, types of dementia that uh, affect the younger middle-aged population. Can you live a long life with dementia? Yes, absolutely. And um, I think one thing that in the on the clinical side is we're learning how to help people uh, lead more better quality of lives even after a diagnosis. And I think that's a really important part of caring for people who have a diagnosis is that it's it's not the end. It is uh, things are going to change and they're going to be different. But helping people and their loved ones. Um, focus on their retained function and abilities and, and highlighting those in their life rather than what they're losing over time. UMMC Dr. Beverly Gwen Windham with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Coming up, we'll learn about training opportunities for rural business development across the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute.
I have a relative who had kidney stones, my mother, in fact. Then I had a brother who had kidney stones. And I'm just wondering if that runs in the family a lot. Yeah, it can. And again, if you live in the South, every, if you're outside, everybody's at risk for kidney stones. But some families do have more than others. My sister has had kidney stones. I have a couple other family members. I have never, thankfully, had a kidney stone. Some people excrete through their kidneys, they filter out a little bit more calcium. So those families are a little bit more at risk for that. If you have a disorder that's causing increased amounts of calcium in your bloodstream, again, calcium's needed, but if you're getting too much of it, then that could put you at risk for kidney stones. There may be some other conditions where you have other stones. So you know, there's struvite stones, there's uh, oxalic acid, there's all kinds of different kinds of things that your kidneys normally secrete that if, they, if they're secreting too much of it, it sort of overpowers the amount of urine, the amount of water. It's just like if you were dissolving salt or if you were dissolving sugar in a liquid, in, in water. Eventually, if you pour too much of it in there, it'll come out of solution. And that's exactly what's happening in the urine is your body is excreting too much of it or you're not excreting enough water to keep up with that. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair is available at bcbsms.com. Live healthy, live blue. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The U.S. Small Business Administration is encouraging small business growth across the state of Mississippi. Regional Administrator Ashley Bell is in the state today to address the Vicksburg-Warren County Chamber of Commerce. He tells MPB's Ezra Wall businesses and stakeholders in rural areas can participate in programs under the Rural Strong Initiative. The key for us is to make sure that the benefits of this great economy reach all Americans, especially rural Americans. Uh, We want to make sure that everyone feels the benefit of this great economy. We have to do a better job of reaching out to rural America, especially places in rural Mississippi, making sure we're doing everything we can to we're uh, giving access to capital, uh, counseling, and contracts uh, availability to those companies in rural areas that are looking for opportunities with the federal government that we're making sure that we're available to help them understand how they can be a part of this great success story. So as you hear from some of these businesses, what are some of the difficulties that they're facing? Well, access to capital is always going to be one, which is why uh, and, uh, next week we're hosting a big micro-lenders event in Mississippi. We, we have to get more uh, diversified. You know, the economy right now is great. People are going online and they're trying to find loans with, with lenders that are charging high interest rates online and they don't know these bankers. And we got to make sure that folks know that there's government-guaranteed lenders right here in your neck of the woods uh, that you can go to, whether you're looking for a traditional SBA loan, or let's just say your credit may not be the best and you're just a startup company and you're looking for up to $50,000. We have smaller banks called microlenders, which are nonprofit banks that SBA supports. They can get you access to capital to get your doors open, to buy that next piece of equipment, to hire that next employee. Uh, so you can take advantage of this great economy right now, too. So the, the credit is and, and access to capital is always going to be key. And then also, you you know, we have the economy is doing so well that we have more uh, jobs that are need to be filled, and we got people to fill them. So uh, that's a, it's a good problem to have, but it's a challenge to have. So working with our state partners to create a workforce uh, that's ready to take advantage of these opportunities is also a challenge. 
We hear a lot about uh, about tax cut programs, incentive programs for larger businesses, manufacturers, everything like that. But really, it's small businesses that are the backbone of the economy. Talk about the importance of starting more small businesses in Mississippi and and the role that that could play in, in keeping our economy moving in the right direction. Nothing's more critical than our small businesses. And we have to do a good job of not only getting them started, but making sure they can succeed. So the SBA critical role of what we do is to do uh, help with small business counseling, working with our small business development centers. Those small business development centers have the key role of making sure that everyday small business owners have access to experts who know the challenges of the economy, uh, can help them figure out that age-old question of uh, knowing what you don't know so that you can save time and money to make sure that you, you don't catch those hiccups and you, you don't get set back by minor fluctuations in the economy, that you're prepared for disasters, that you're prepared for fluctuations, and make sure that you're in a position to continue to grow and hire more Americans. One of the initiatives from the SBA is the Rural Strong Initiative. Talk about that and how people can take part and learn more. Absolutely. So the Rural Strong Initiative is a partnership between the SBA and the USDA. What that's going to mean is that in a, in a town near you right now, uh, SBA and USDA are working to plan joint events around Rural Strong that will do a couple of things. It's going to educate the lending community, the small community banks in the neighborhoods and the communities where you live, educate them on how they can do SBA loans and USDA loans, which many times get overlooked, and how those two loan packages can work to fit your needs to grow your business or start your business. It's also going to look at at how we can take the existing economies in these rural areas and bolster them by helping them get access to capital by taking the existing businesses and figure out what can we do to create more jobs. And it's a community conversation. So if you're a county commissioner out there, a state rep, a small-town mayor, uh, we need you a part of these rural strong committees in your area. Contact the SBA. Let them know that you're willing to serve because we can't do this alone. Rural Strong is an initiative that's including our chamber leaders, our local elected officials, our state elected officials, and we're going to pull together the resources of the federal government to put everything at your disposal to help create the type of communities you want to see. And you're uh, actually on the way to uh, Mississippi, where you're going to be the keynote speaker <laughs> at an event in Vicksburg at the uh, Warren County Chamber of Commerce luncheon. And uh, so people who can't catch you there, though, where can they find more information about the programs SBA offers? You can Go to sba.gov uh, forward slash uh, MS, and you can find everything you can about the SBA office in Mississippi. SBA Regional Administrator Ashley Bell, thank you very much. Thank you. In other news, some historically black colleges and universities in Mississippi are facing a financial downward spiral. School officials say they need their alumni to donate now more than ever. But as MPB's Ashley Norwood reports, less than 10 percent of students graduating from black public colleges in Mississippi are giving back. It's the first home game of the 2018 football season at Alcorn State University in Lorman. A sea of purple and gold t-shirts and pom-poms flood the stadium as alumni and fans root for a touchdown. Kendrika Pipes was a first-generation college student eight years ago when Alcorn offered her an $85,000 academic scholarship out of high school. They had invested in me, and they cared enough to come to my school, get me to let me know that, you know, I was important to them. They really wanted me to be there, and no other school had done that. But at this point in her life, she says it's difficult to return the investment. When you're a young professional, you need all of your coins to survive, and so you just don't really see it as, oh, I need to do that right now. You feel that you kind of have time to do that at a later date. The national average of HBCU grads giving back is a little over 11%. In Mississippi, 
it's less than that. In an MPB News survey of the eight public four-year institutions, Alcorn reported 7% of its alumni donating, and Jackson State University and Mississippi Valley State University reported 6% of former students giving in 2017. Nettie Winters is president of the Alcorn National Alumni Association. He says one reason the rate is low is because black schools in Mississippi didn't always offer wealth-building academic programs. Major universities or the white universities They've always been in the wealth building, doctors, lawyers, engineers, etc. So therefore, they are more capable in terms of what they do and how they make a living to give back. For example, in 2017, 17.6% of Mississippi State University alumni gave $39 million. And in the case of the University of Southern Mississippi, 4% of alumni generated $9.1 million. Alcorn alumnus Kendrika Pipes also went to graduate school at the University of Mississippi in 2014. She recalls Ole Miss graduates raising more than $105,000 toward the replacement of two goalposts after fans stormed the field during the comeback win against number one Alabama. The amount Ole Miss grads raised within days is almost half of what some public HBCUs generate from their donors in a whole year. They have the financial backing that they need. I hate to say that, but they don't really need my money <laughs> like Alcorn State University does to survive, to, to sustain itself. Brad Franklin is a 1992 graduate of Jackson State University. He doesn't make annual financial gifts, but he says the conversation between universities and students should start sooner. There needs to be something or some vehicle that starts putting that in their heads when they're freshmen so that when they leave, they can figure out or at least have had a chance to figure out a way that they could give $50 a month. But could that make up for years of poor alumni giving and underfunding by the state? In 1975, Jake Ayers of Glen Allen sued Mississippi for allocating more money to predominantly white schools. In 2011, after years of dispute, the U.S. Department of Justice and the state came to a $500 million settlement agreement. Alcorn, Jackson State, and Valley State benefited from the Ayers settlement through funding for improved academic programming and infrastructure. Institutions of Higher Learning Commissioner Al Rankin says funding from the Ayers settlement is set to decrease in 2018 and completely phase out by 2022. During a system-wide listening tour at Valley State in Itabina, he addresses an alumnus's question about what more reduced funding means on their campus. You don't know what's going to happen, and you can't budget based on hope. Look at the other main source of revenue and tuition collections from students to try to offset that $1.5 million Laws. Mary Crump is a 1968 Valley State graduate and president of the Jackson Hines Alumni Chapter. She believes donations could fund more student scholarships. She says educating more young people ultimately impacts the entire state. You will see a, a healthier Mississippi because people are able to work. They will be more able to get health care. The prison rate dropped. Somewhere along the line, it ought to be a light that goes off in folks' heads to say that if I give... What a difference it would make. While many HBCU graduates are planning to participate in this year's list of homecoming activities, university officials are beginning to tackle new ideas they hope will get their alumni just as fired up about giving back. I'm Ashley Norwood, MPB News.
Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Fix It 101. At 10, it's Everyday Tech. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. To see our team's updates throughout the day, follow MPB News on Twitter. Did you miss part of the show? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org.